Welcome to Discounted. Deep learning is driving today's artificial intelligence explosion. As the evolving story of artificial intelligence explosion and intelligent computing brings advanced algorithms, machine learning, deep learning, and cognitive computing to solve problems faced by nations, its government, industries, organizations, and academia, in short referred to as NGIOA, in cyberspace, geospace, and space, in short referred to as CGS, that was typically performed by we, the humans, the growing concerns that in the coming years, human intelligence will not be able to keep up and solve complex problems surrounding them in cyberspace, geospace, and space on its own is getting very real. There are numerous reports emerging from across nations that deep machine learning has convincingly penetrated complex business processes across NGIOA, that means nations, its government, industries, organizations, and academia. Now, as entities across NGIOA have begun to use deep learning algorithms, more specifically neural networks that are learning from raw data, they are basically enabling computers or machines to make better predictions and take smart actions and decisions in real time. The role of human in taking those decisions is diminishing. To discuss how deep learning is transforming business processes of financial industry further, I'm honored to welcome Professor Alo Ghosh to this roundup. Professor Ghosh is the co-founder of OnLions. Prior to joining OnLions, Professor Ghosh taught at Wharton, UPenn, did consulting in McKinsey, entrepreneurship in Silicon Valley, led sizable PE deals in India and sovereign fund investments in Asia-Pac, and created and led one of South Asia's first institute teaching degrees and diplomas from London School of Economics, Oxford, and Cambridge. Welcome, Professor Ghosh. We are honored to have you on Risk Roundup. No, thank you. Good to be here. Wonderful, Professor Ghosh. So the digital global age has grown in scale and complexity, increasing concern that manual business practices that are driven largely by human intelligence are no longer sufficient to effectively perform complex tasks on its own in a timely and cost-effective manner. So as we take a step forward in our digital global age journey, is human intelligence sufficient to manage the complex processes of the financial industry? Uh, the simple answer, Jeshri, is no. Um, still, there's a very simple reason for that to begin with, is that we can only amass that much information in our heads. And, uh, and then we have to process that. Computers are very good at doing that. They can amass a lot of information thanks to cheap storage and cheap uh, uh, processing and they can also uh, with through algorithms uh, you know make sense out of that data m much much more uh, what should I say um, a more en uh, encompassing way now does that only make uh, humans less in uh, you know less interesting in terms of decision making down the road uh, no that's not the only thing the other thing is that in finance, and there's a lot of mistakes made because of biases that people have, uh, emotions, and uh, just mistakes. Okay, and it lead to massive consequences. Uh, unlike uh, humans, uh, computers don't have those problems. Okay, but the pro the thing is, if you program a computer to do something, it'll keep doing that. And if you put in mistakes there, those mistakes will keep getting repeated. No new ones will get made. But humans will keep making new mistakes. Yes. Um, so yeah. So uh, absolutely, I think uh, uh, computers uh, will basically uh, be seventy to eighty percent of the, uh, you know the decision support. Mostly, decisions will be made by humans for a long time to come, not by computers. Well, so it looks like, and you are right that you know as we the data that we feed or the information that we provide you know that is uh, that's how you know the mistakes are generated and it uh, just keeps amplifying but as we take a step forward in our digital global age journey all entities across ngi will surely need to go beyond those basic human tasks and processes like computing data and collecting metrics to developing more intelligent algorithms to strengthen some of the most important interconnected and interdependent 
operational, tactical and strategic technologies, processes and initiatives and human beings cannot do that on their own. So this new wave of digital disruption is emerging as artificial intelligence to machine learning to deep learning undergoes a massive acceleration driven by rapidly evolving algorithms and the rapid growth in big data that is now accessible to all. So how do you vision this new wave of digital disruption that is transforming nations and especially the financial industry? Yeah, I think two things have brought about this um, AI uh, deep learning um, uh, revolution. One is, of course, the enormous amount of data that we are producing every day. Um, a lot of which is captured by a few companies more than others like the Googles and the Facebooks and the Amazons and the large financial institutions and uh, Visa and MasterCard and people like that. They have enormous flows of transactional information. But the other thing is that uh, you need uh, enormous parallel processing power to do proper AI. And that has come about with the realization that every computer has a GPU, a graphical processing unit, as CPUs perform tasks serially. GPUs perform tasks parallelly. That realization led to the uh, the rise of NVIDIA and com uh, you know companies like that that create GPU machines for AI. So AI, just like human brains, are of parallel thinking, parallel processing. Okay, so GPUs provide that. And now we are going into next stages. There's a announcement by Google that they're uh, they're going to come up with all the um, um, specs of TPUs. This is tensor processing unit. And we'll get into that later. But so what's happening is that there's a huge amount of computing power that never existed. And there's a huge amount of data that uh, wasn't kept. Uh, only problem standing the way of taking all this data and putting it in all this computing power is that the data is pretty messy. So it takes a lot of cleaning up and labor that's one thing. The other thing is the algorithms that are written by people to train the uh, machines to make sense of the data. That process of training and deep learning is very, very onerous. You know, people have no idea how expensive and difficult that is. So we are at a stage that the uh, the much of the so-called revolution is being done, in, you know, in the um, campuses of Google and other places where they have both the data and the massive computing. Power. Um, and you know the the uh, infrastructure like electricity. You have no idea how much electricity we need. You know if you convert uh, typing from a computer to voice-based computing, which is happening, because everybody used three minutes worth of voice-based computing. Uh, Google and others, uh, Facebook will have to double their current uh, farms. Already, they don't know where to put the next ones. Okay, so uh, there is that huge constraint on the other side as well. But yes, from whatever we have so far, there's a lot to be uh, expected and what is happening. Yes, absolutely. And it seems like if the decision makers across NGI are not thinking about AI broadly or machine learning or deep learning and intelligent machines now, then they run the risk of their initiatives, products, services, and businesses being undoubtedly disrupted in the coming years. Do you think that the decision makers, irrespective of industry, are they prepared for what is coming their way? Uh, certainly not. It's only the leaders who are. Uh, and you can see that by their, uh, their dominance of the marketplace, uh, how Amazon has ri ridden so far based on pure information and and uh, you know con consumer analytics. Uh, and now they've planted the Amazon Echo Alexa into your homes. So there's 30 million homes that are bugged for Amazon to listen to everything that's happening in the homes and so on. So uh, yeah, just a handful of leaders have utilized it and have gained enormous power. Um, so that's what it is right now. I told you the constraints. The constraints are you need a lot of money to have all those computing power. You need a lot of uh, ability to pay for the infrastructure costs. And then you need to have a lot of data. And you have an army of people to process that data. I don't know if you use the Amazon Echo at home. Do you? Yes, we do. 
Okay. All my kids have it. All of us have it. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know uh, how long it took for Amazon to create that? They used um, 300 full-time uh, smartest AI programmers for four years in dollars of computing power to get to the first version. So that's how expensive things can be to get these things done. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So it obviously there's an entry barrier for other companies. Uh, yeah. The most important entry barrier is talent. Yes. And anybody who is uh, smart enough to be a top flight AI programmer is being taken over by the uh, the top five companies. Yes. And they pay them amazing salaries, million dollar salaries. So they're not going anyplace. So that's that's a big worry. So people, far-sighted people like Elon Musk and others have created OpenAI, and Google and um, Facebook also, and also Amazon have uh, now published a lot of their algorithms, uh, made it public. And the idea for the uh, for that is to create more AI brain power, as well as to make other people use it. So uh, and that's happening. So there are good things happening as well in terms of commoditization. Yes, democratization, commoditization, it is happening, certainly, no doubt about that. Now, while credit scoring models based on classical statistical theories have been widely used across nations, these models seem to be becoming less resilient when it comes to large amounts of data input. So over the years, while financial models that are based, that were based on classical statistical theories have been widely used across nations, it seems deep learning is now is a necessity to explore for those statistical models for financial processes because they are just not able to keep up. Do you see deep learning replacing statistical modeling approaches like you know what we have been using over the years? It's a very deep question, <laughs> but uh, let me try to uh, answer it as uh, in layman's language because the. Statistical world was created around very little data. Yes. And so sampling, small samples, and the whole world of big data uh, completely flummoxes anything that statisticians really know and do. So that's one big problem. But statistics has a, a very strong basis uh, over the years, and it, uh, statistics is all about finding causality. Whereas big data is not about causality, it's about finding correlation. So big data does pattern recognition, whereas statistics does hypothesis testing, which means, you know, theory tells you that that consumers should behave in a such a, in such a way. Is the data validating that? That's what a statistician does. Uh, um, a machine learning um, uh, person would come up and say, here's the data, let's mine it. And then uh, mining the data will tell me whether consumers behave in a certain way. Forget about theory, all right? So deep learning, machine learning, all of AI today remains nothing but data mining and pattern recognition, albeit in extremely sophisticated ways. So deep learning is the most sophisticated way. But it's based on something that's very old, is neural networks. Neural networks yes. have, had come about in the 80s, early 80s. And guess who used it first? Uh, FICO, the uh, Fair Isaac company. So the FICO scores were the first users of neural networks. As a matter of fact, long ago I did some consulting for them. And that was the start, but it did not produce the kinds of um, new uh, insights that the version of neural networks that deep learning is today. Uh, it's called deep because it's neural networks in layers. Yeah. And yeah. I'll explain that. And uh, the so deep learning has um, basically taken the old neural networks world and, and made it into something uh, extremely explosive. Otherwise, yeah. sorry, otherwise AI is just a bunch of techniques which have been around a long time. Some from statistics, some from mathematics, and uh, it's a grab bag. Yes, yes, absolutely. Now you talked about neural networks and I was thinking human brain mapping. There is a, a intense effort going on to understand not only the you know our uh, how the brain is structured, but also to understand all the neural pathways and how those uh, decisions are taken or how the intelligence is created, how the you know not only the memories are created and stored, but how the intelligence itself you know functions, and. It, 
I believe, you know, I read recently somewhere that now they are finding out that glial cells plays a very big role in the human brain. So far, we were thinking that if we understand the neural pathway, we will be able to understand how the intelligence, uh, you know, is created and how uh, it can be replicated into computers or, uh, you know, any machine to create these artificial intelligence and, you know, build on that and uh, have a human-like intelligence in the computers. But it seems that it's much more complex than that because the glial cells so far that were ignored by the neuroscientists, now it seems that they play a big role. And that's probably if we understand the role and how to replicate that, then probably we'll be able to translate that into computers and you know have a real human-like intelligence. But it looks like there is still a very long way in understanding the neuroscience or uh, you know about the whole brain, human brain. And it's still, you know, at this point, human brain is the most complex computer. I think it will take probably years before we, able, we are able to, I would say decades before we are able to replicate how the human brain functions into computers. So it's very complex. But anyway, as the technology experts apply deep learning beyond financial forecasting and stock market prediction in blockchain to move and store data securely and privately, what impact do you see of converging technologies on the financial sector? Because especially one technology that is the blockchain, the machine learning and deep learning is all going very rapidly. But mm -hmm. at the same time, blockchain is also being used very, you know, intensely. And now all the, it seems like systems are going to be redesigned on blockchain for the security purpose and for, you know, many other benefits. So, how do you see the converging technologies play a role, especially if we talk about blockchain and the deep learning? How do you see the impact in the coming years? Yeah, that, those are very deep questions. I, I think, first of all, the, the summary that you made of neural, uh, neural sciences and what, uh, what we know versus what we don't know is absolutely uh, right on. Because right now, what we know about, even at the top end of neuroscience uh, research, we probably don't know more than 1% of how the brain functions. Now, deep learning emulates one tiny bit of that understanding, which is that we have neurons, we have synapses, and, for, uh, and if we look at it, if we are able to light up our brain, we'll see that an idea comes in, some of these neurons light up, and then the light travels to other neurons. The, the light dies out in some of the neurons, but stays on the others. And then once it stabilizes, which is a, probably a second, right, and, and then you'll see that that's the understanding. Okay, so based on that, they've created this idea of deep learning, which is essentially that let's create a lot of neurons and then layers for the neurons to keep learning over a period of time amongst themselves. But you're right, it doesn't do what the brain really does. Very simple example, uh, to get a computer trained to recognize pictures, so, so deep learning has been very good for pictures, for images, and for speech recognition. Yes. Not that good for language yet. NLP is still, still not um, disrupted. And anything else, big question mark. So finance and all that, big question mark yet. But um, the um, um, there are two approaches going on. So deep learning is essentially that what I told you: neural networks in layers. Whereas IBM has a different tack which is uh, IBM Watson, uh, they are in the business of amassing all data that's available out there and then doing the trial and error, emulating the trial and error process that the brain uh, uses to understand things. So if deep learning were to figure out uh, a, a familiar face, a child would look at a familiar face once, maybe twice, and understand that that's a familiar face. To make the computer do that would take 200 uh, days of massive training, and even then it might fail. So obviously there's a huge delta between uh, what the brain does and what the computer does. But yeah. given that, uh, deep learning has been quite useful, um, as I said, in image processing and all that. And where is the application? Applications are in uh, figuring out medical records, MRI, uh, you know, anything that has to deal with pictures, anything that has to deal with speed, uh, speech, sound wave. And then it'll slowly get into language understanding. Already Google Translate is far, far better than it was three years ago. Okay, now 
that's one thing. Blockchains came about completely separately uh, through the Bitcoin uh, revolution. So an anonymous guy uh, with a Japanese name uh, wrote a paper. And from that, the Bitcoin thing was created. So blockchain is an underlying database technology for Bitcoins to function. And current database technology, which is relational data, was created again when CPUs and, and uh, storage was very expensive. Now that that's virtually, uh, you know, like water, uh, what blockchain does is it basically records everything. So if you look at a database, a relational database, you'll see today's snapshot. If you look at a blockchain database, you look at everything that's happened. Okay, that's one piece. The other piece of blockchain is that it's all decentralized, like the internet. So you can never figure out where the stuff is being stored, who has what, it's all hashed and encrypted. So it's very difficult to get to it and disrupt it. Uh, then you can embed uh, actions on them. So let's say you have an insurance contract. It's a complex contract with 400 pages. Uh, it's all in there in the blockchain and as and when uh, a claim is made, everything is recorded. So there's no going back and changing anything. But guess what? There's some human putting in the data at some point. So there's always that disruption capability. And the other thing that Bitcoin sitting on top of blockchains has an uh, has a, a very complex set of programs that let a bunch of people actually figure out whether the Bitcoin is being used for multiple purposes. When you have a physical money, you give it to somebody, it's gone. But when you have virtual money, you can give it to me and you and everybody else, and nobody would know. So uh, this mining algorithms try to figure out whether you're misusing it. So down the road, Bitcoins will have a huge impact, no doubt about it, as long as governments don't keep on stopping. Blockchain also, the problem is uh, governments and institutions have to adopt it, otherwise it won't get there. But, uh, yes. it, but it's, it's quite revolutionary. So what, what's going to happen is with blockchains, you cannot disrupt information and make it look like what it, what, whatever you want to do. With deep learning and other AI techniques, you can create algorithms and spurious data and make things look any way you want to do. So let's say a criminal gets a hold of a lot of data, uh, consumer data, and then creates algorithms to show that only young people will uh, do, you know, like this product. That's businesses. Criminals can do even worse than that. So the point is um, blockchain plus AI together can give more security and an enormous ability to track the data for uh, for uh, honesty and you know for fraud purposes. So yes, the two. But you know, again, blockchains require a lot of com lot of storage and computing power. Yes. But, um, uh, one guy I know has a startup where they're using uh, all the unused disk spaces in our laptops and smartphones to create a blockchain system because they're like zillions of terabytes of data space that are not used. Yes, very, true. very, very true, very true. That now, I mean, you just talked about Bitcoin, but do you think that the Bitcoin would be accepted as a global cryptocurrency? Because I see a lot of banks are also testing out their own cryptocurrency. I think City, Citibank also is testing the Citicoin and several other banks. So yes. I'm not sure if we will, you know, if the world will settle on Bitcoin or we are going to have some other cryptocurrency or we are going to have many cryptocurrencies. It's going yeah. to be so interesting. Bitcoin, the old Bitcoin is just one. Yes. So now, now there are several others that are actually surpassing it. Yes. Uh, but but Bitcoins, the Bitcoin itself has been used most by who? We, the, by yes. the Chinese. So by the Chinese to take money out of China and yes. put it into real estate in this country. Yes, very true, very true. And so the Chinese government has now uh, made it illegal and they started their own cryptocurrency. India is also thinking about it, etc. But the point is that, yes, we will have cryptocurrencies. Yes. And we will have cryptocurrencies that are probably regulated. What it does, the biggest, uh, the biggest backlash is going to come from banks. Banks make so much money out of being the middleman. And cryptocurrency basically decentralizes everything. There's no need for a middleman. So essentially, it uh, it gets rid of a huge part of banking, which is payments. Okay, um, take a 
another very uh, sort of tangential uh, application. You know, remittances from developing countries uh, by workers there to their home countries is about, last year was about $600 billion. The number one country sending money back is India, followed by followed by China and then, um, then the Philippines and so on. Now, the World Bank has been trying to figure out how to get the cost of this transaction down. Currently, it's 8%. So if you're sending 100 bucks, you, the other person will get only 92. Yes. And that's huge. It is. It is. A lot of startups are trying to figure it out. But you know why they can't do it? Because physically, the um, uh, people like, who are these people? The money transfer guys. So they have these people running around. They take cash from people and they put it in the system and that other side gets the cash. So unless you make it bitcoins, it's not going to happen. And so that's, that, that's where one big example of bitcoin usage will be down the road. And there are already a lot of applications are out there which are already doing this work. I believe I uh, I read somewhere and recently I had someone on my risk roundup. We talked about it that there is a London based startup and they are sending, you know, that cryptocurrency through cryptocurrency immediately. Like you put that money in your uh, application right now and in, within, you know, next few seconds, the recipient party receives that and the transaction cost as you were talking about it is so low in this cryptocurrency transfer so it is going to be the future because uh, and not only the processing i mean the expense the cost of transfer but also the days the number of days it takes before you know the money reaches in the current system it is you know it's not uh, something that will work in a digital global age so this year's cryptocurrency it will bring down the cost of transfer as well as the it's going to be immediate so the time that it could be saved it's huge because you know if somebody is in need of money and someone wants to send that money to their family or you know for any initiative this can be immediately transferred. So cryptocurrency is going to be the future. And of course, there are going to be a lot of challenges we'll have to overcome before governments yeah, have to adopt it. If they legalize it, then it can't be exactly. done. But they're going to do that. If you look at uh, blockchain, uh, sorry, um, Bitcoin last year as an investment asset class, it outperformed every other asset class, yes. despite the volatility. It outperformed gold. And so on. So that that's an indication of its growing popularity. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. It is uh, the future, and it's a necessity. Now, uh, when we talk about the biggest names in technology that are already building and refining chatbots, they are revolutionizing the way we interact with intelligent machines, as their applications are having a serious impact on everyday businesses, even in financial sector. So, uh, we are seeing this. You just talked about the uh, Alexa. The Amazon, you know, Echo. Uh, that there, there is also Microsoft, Cortana, Facebook, and Google now. And acting up. Let me put it off. Yes, yes. So, the, how do you think that this deep learning is uh, impacting the emerging market of chatbots, and how do you see it, especially impacting some of the financial sectors? Because it will take over customer service and several other, you know, areas, and it's going to be probably very. Uh, the tellers and you know the customer representatives that there a lot of changes would come in financial sector yeah absolutely a lot of lot of reps uh, in customer service and selling uh, jobs are going to disappear and they already are if you look at a lot of call centers they're basically getting decimated chatbots current state of chatbots is such that it has a lot of promise but it is a very very nascent technology so you know about the Microsoft situation. They created Jetbot, but which went rogue. Yes. So they have they they get to have lives of their own, and they can be manipulated. Okay. So the the chatbots, the biggest problem with the chatbot is, is it it is meant for interaction with everybody, which means a whole bunch of people can uh, can manipulate the chatbot. Okay. And if they're programming people, they can create some really bad uh, outcomes. Uh, as a matter of fact, there can become bugs that go back into the system. So those things have been sorted out. I think chatbots will be very, very important. Apps on um, uh, on smartphones will disappear. They'll all become like bots. 
You know, if you want something, you'll get it as part of your operating system rather than have to download an app and all of that stuff. Um, think about it. If you want to buy insurance, you have to get uh, download five insurance companies' apps. Then you got to go and compare them. Uh, how will you do that? Whereas a chatbot can go into all these sites, you take your criteria and give you the right quotes, parallel quotes for a certain kind of insurance. Okay, and so all of that, and then you can ask questions about it, and it'll answer it. So yes, it's going to happen, um, uh, and uh, it, it it will, but it won't have much of an impact on finance as it will have on consumer facing, uh, maybe retail banking. Yeah, a lot of retail banking stuff. And, but even uh, the trading advisors and all that, it will create an impact because right now all these uh, financial advisors. There is a you know concern that you know they are not objective in their analysis and they don't give you the accurate you know suggestions or advice as far as you know what decision you should take for your uh, investment or how you should trade also. So uh, maybe this you know also will play a role because they all will there is not going to be any bias the human emotions that you know trigger errors and that uh, are sometimes you know knowingly unknowingly giving the wrong advice. Those things could be avoided with those chatbots. Right. So uh, your question has two elements to it. One is robo-advices for health management, which has become quite a, an area. The other is you actually asked it in your question, uh, in virtual banking, personal assistant for banking, and so on. Personal assistant for banking is going to be amazingly uh, good, uh, amazingly successful, because Right now, you have to go to a bank. Of course, you, you go to Wells Fargo right now, where I bank, after all the debacle. The manager comes out of the big branch, opens the door of my car, ushers me in, uh, uh, pours me coffee. And then, uh, you know, I don't need all of that, for God's sakes. I need, don't have to dress up and go to the bank. Um, if I have a very um, uh, you know, personalized assistant that can help me with the bank, which is highly secure, I won't go to the bank. So bank branches will disappear. They already are disappearing, yes. and yes. a lot of these jobs will be lost. There's no doubt about that in my mind. On the other hand, with robo-investing, uh, the performance of robo-investors in terms of returns have been terrible. Okay. What they're trying to disrupt is this active management fees of 2% or so, 1% to 2%, that nobody wants to pay because they don't add any value. Uh, plus, they add biases, as you said. They have their own biases, lack of knowledge, whatever, or they're trying to push a product. So, robo uh, investors, uh, investment uh, uh, companies are going to change quite significantly. Already, there's a massive uh, revolution in ETFs, you must have heard. And ETF is already, in a few couple of years, become a multi trillion dollar industry. And that puts a lot of risks in the, into the hands of individual investors who know nothing about them and might make terrible mistakes. And so what robo-investment is going towards is to make sure that instead of looking at the upside on your wealth, let's try to keep the downside to zero. In other words, wealth maintenance for baby boomers who really don't are not looking at doubling their wealth. They're trying to look at whether the money they've saved will take them through retirement. So that's what the emphasis is. And so I come back to deep learning and all of that stuff. Risk management is where financial risk management is where deep learning can be extremely useful. Yes. Because because the biggest mistakes we make are on the downside, not on the upside. You know, the human nature is such that uh, the stock market is the only place when the, where there's a big discount and we go sell something rather than buy it. You know, if if the Ferrari dealer down uh, down the road was selling a car for seventy five percent off, I'd run and buy it. But if you get a stock that's running at 75% down, you'll sell it, which is wrong, right? And okay. so the point is, human psychology is geared to doing some very wrong thing. Yes, yes. Okay. And then uh, finance theorists have said that we must invest in uh, index funds, right? Indexes are weighted averages by market capitalization. So when an index goes up, the emulator who's emulating the index will buy more of those valuable stocks, right? Those prices that have gone up. So you're buying high. When it comes down, you're selling low. Yes. Self-defeating. Yes. So uh, these things 
these irrational things that have come about uh, and protecting the downside uh, through a lot of mechanisms like options and so on is where robo-investments will go. Right now, they're not doing that. Right now, all they're doing is they're taking up some indexes, giving you some you know, little stories about saving taxes. Uh, Very true. See, that what you said that about the human fear, that when the stock price is going down, people would get so fearful and they will start selling it. And that's where, you know, this kind of uh, our deep intelligence would, you know, help us. Individual, I, I'm not sure at this point that if it's going to help the individual investors, but especially the traders and financial companies and uh, the hedge funds and everyone else who has more economic power to be able to afford that kind of uh, you know intelligence or in those kind of applications because it's not very economical it's not that everyone can you know use it and when it comes to trade execution at this point it involves like figuring out how to get the best price for a security yeah. when you are looking at an order book but for here it's uh, the future is like in a uh, few hundred milliseconds or a minute where a trader has to take that decision whether he wants to trade that security or not and they can afford all based on that uh, quantitative data that is backed up in deep learning framework they can they have access to that and they can afford to take the right decision but this also creates a lot of imbalances because uh, all these big trading firms they will they will have access to those and they would be able to trade those securities very quickly now if you are looking at the common stocks that are traded on uh, stock exchanges the individual investors they don't have those cap you know ex that kind of access so they will take decisions based on their human emotions and uh, they they are never going to be able to compete with uh, the institutions and that itself is going to cause a lot of risk so you will see a lot of uh, financial loss happening to individual investors in the coming years whereas the uh, trading firms they will make a lot of money based on the intelligence they will have yeah it's it's a very complex question and so let me try to get to it in a simple way one is that uh, you're right trading firms with lots of money will continue to make more money but the good news is that this millisecond stuff gets arbitrage quickly you know now they're looking at putting a computer as close to the trading hall as possible, physically, blah, blah, blah. Uh, then com uh, quantum computing is coming. And that's going to also make it... Uh, all of that is fine. That really does not affect the masses. Okay. Uh, let, let me give you an interesting fact that a lot few people have noticed. From 2008 till today, the inequality of wealth in the United States has skewed more than ever before. Okay, it the, the markets went down and it came up. Why do you think that is? The main reason for that is people with their psychology issues, baby boomers with the need to take money out, uh, people uh, needing money for other reasons. The moment they see the stock market have scratched, they took everything out. Okay, but the wealthiest people did not need that money, so they kept it there. They, you know, that was part of their portfolio because they were busy with the hedge funds and all those guys, which some of whom make money for them, some of them lose money for them, net net, some make money, some it's just a, a transfer of money from one wealthy person to another wealthy person, uh, with huge fees taken out by the hedge fund managers. As a matter of fact, uh, it's very interesting data in the last 10 years, the um, uh, hedge fund managers took out about 70 percent of the money they made for the investors and 30% went to the <laughs> because of this sharing of profits as well as a fee. It, it's just an unbelievable. So, um, so if you, if you think that all the, these people had to do was to stay put and psychologically have the guts to say that no, it's going to come back. It's going to come back. Then they wouldn't have the skewness of wealth would be much less. Yes. Okay. So it's not egregious behavior. It's basically psychology and, uh, and the kind of place where you are. Now, does Wall Street have any incentive to tell their uh, clients that uh, don't sell? They have an incentive to tell them to sell. 
Because as you pointed out, the more they sell at the wrong times, the more money their Wall Street guys make. And so uh, there's a tremendous conflict of interest. Okay. If, you, if you look at uh, the world's most famous value investor that I, uh, I'm his Chela, uh, uh, um, Buffett. Buffett celebrated his 50th anniversary of Berkshire Hathaway in 2015, right? Uh, in those 50 years, uh, the cumulative returns was 1.9 million percent, which translates to about 25 percent per year compounded. Now, nobody in the world has ever been able to do this. There are other value investors that have done 25 percent, but for a decade and so on, but not for 50 years. Why? Very simple. He does not. He, he lives in Omaha. He does not listen to any of the TV and radio channels. He's confident in his own valuations. He will not move whether the market comes. At some point, Berkshire Hathaway was down 50%, but he sold nothing. Okay. So patience, long-term, finding the good investment vehicles is the simplest rule for making money. Yes. Okay. yes. That's how the wealthy have become wealthy over the years. It's not the hedge funds. It's not the PE funds. And I worked extensively with both hedge funds and PE funds. They make you some money, but they are, they're basically statistical players. Sometimes they'll make money, sometimes they'll lose money. It's a toss of economy. And the very top 1% of both, PE and H funds, make a lot of money. But you can't get to them because the richest people get to them. Yes. So, so for the common man, it's this staying positive. So if technology could find a way to get these uh, downturns uh, you know, flattened out a little bit, and that's possible to do. Yes, yes. So I hope robo investors know that will do that. Yes, I hope so. And as the machine learning algorithms are explored to gain that analytical age in trading, a lot of startups are you know popping up and they are emerging. Yeah. And so they that's, are... What that's what will take the power out of Wall Street into yes, yes. people's hands. Yes. So which which from your assessment, which startups are important that we should keep an eye on? Right now, fintech, you know, I've been following fintech from its inception, and a lot of money's gone into fintech, venture capital, right? As a matter of fact, the reason why there's so much money in fintech and uh, through venture capital is because the limited partners are all strategic players. They're the insurance companies, the banks, and the uh, Wall Street firms, right? Because they're trying to figure out what brain power exists outside of their own company and how they can capitalize on it. The, Nothing massive has come out, but in terms of trading and so on, that's all inside of hedge funds. You won't even get to see them. There's a company called Two Sigma in Chicago that has hired top deep learning people, and they're making 60-70% returns. Um, the, uh, the, there are others who are doing similar things, but the... Uh, the um, sorry, I lost the train of uh, thinking in the question that you asked. Um, can you repeat the question again? We were talking about what are the emerging startups that... Emerging startups, yeah. Yes. So, so in, in wealth management uh, and asset management and trading, most of that is getting uh, going inside the hedge fund. So you won't get to see much of that. Okay. The moment the startup does well, somebody buys them out and is gone. Um, in insurance, the biggest impact will be in insurance. And it's just nothing has happened yet. But insurance is an industry that will be totally disrupted. Insurance it, it, is. It should be because, uh, sorry to interrupt, but insurance industry has walked away from its original goal. I mean, 200 years back when it was created, it was accountable. It was bringing accountability in everything. If someone did not have, you know, they were making sure that people had all the right, uh, uh, you know, tools that were necessary before they would issue any policy. But that is no longer the case. If you talk just about risk management, and this is, you know, something I talk, uh, you know, very uh, extensively with everyone, is that if you talk about risk management, what is a lot of, what are a lot of companies and people businesses doing right now they would love to transfer their risk they would just purchase the policies and they would transfer their risk and uh, by transferring the risk those risks are not getting managed they're just getting bigger and bigger and then we end up with you know systemic risk and uh, we keep having the crisis happening every you know few years 
Now, if insurance industry plays an extensive role, integrated role with risk management, just talking about risk management, then they have a capability to bring accountability in every uh, you know, decision that executives take or every risk, how it is managed. So at this point, we have two different risks that we have to be concerned about. One is independent risk that any entity can manage on its own. And one is inter interconnected, interdependent risk that no entity can manage on their own. And that's where, you know, the cybersecurity risk and a lot of risks are, you know, coming in. Now, if we allow, if we create a framework where insurance industry is the driver of that, you know, framework in which they would say, uh, they would say that if any entity has, uh, they may, they'll make sure that each of them have, you know, the right framework, risk management framework, and that when the risks are identified, if the entity can manage that risk on their own, they should not be allowed to purchase any policy, or rather there should not be any policies available to purchase. Only for interconnected and interdependent risk, the insurance industry should be allowed to issue policies. If we do that, then a lot of, you know, this financial crisis happening across nation and now not just financial crisis what other security crisis that we are you know seeing we will be able to prevent all that because we will bring accountability across you know ngio and decision makers so sorry about that i had to say that when it came to insurance because i see the insurance role changing very extensively if you know they go in the right direction yeah i, I think you've made some very insightful points which uh... Um, uh, the insurance company has actually done a good job uh, over the years of managing its own risk. And, and part of the reason is the following. They, they have moved away from the selling of insurance because it's all done by brokers and so on. So uh, last year was the first year that the global insurance industry crossed $5 trillion in premiums. That makes them the largest financial institution sector in the, uh, in the business. And... Uh, a third, almost 25% of that went to the middleman for selling. So what happens is that the sellers of insurance and the underwriters are two separate beings. So the sellers can go sell anything. And the insurers will then risk pool it and figure out the underwriting risk. And they do a decent job of underwriting. Because among finance professionals, actuaries actually look at data of hundreds of years and do a lot of mathematical analysis and so on. Now, the... Uh, the savior of the uh, of systemic risk in insurance is the reinsurance business. Okay, so people like, like reinsurance companies. So one of the biggest ones are the ones that uh, Warren Buffett runs, and the brain behind Warren Buffett's reinsurance is a, a fellow I know from McKinsey days, Ajit Jain. Uh, Ajit is so good at figuring out premiums for very, 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 very low probability but very high impact risk that he has been able to generate. Uh, he left McKinsey in 86 and I joined in 85. We had one year in common. And since then, he has been in Berkshire Hathaway. He has netted Berkshire $44 billion after taxes from the, from the insurance rate. So he's that smart. But everybody is now emulating that. So every fund manager you look at, hedge fund manager, they all have reinsurance arms. And so they're doing silly things. They're making uh, all the mistakes that Ajit wouldn't make. So we are coming at a time where the risk, systemic risks are growing like crazy. All right. Uh, not just financially, but through geopolitical risks, which we had to. And then uh, the, 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 the insurance industry will be disrupted. And, um, you know, the idea that you talked about, about shifting individual risk and make it a pass through and then take very risky decisions is something that will always be around as it happened in uh, credit default swaps and so on. Um, you know, the whole whole thing completely exploded because every uh, seller of uh, credit was, uh, was clearing his balance sheet by selling it to somebody else who was securitizing and selling it to individuals. And the same thing happens with reinsurance. At some point, reinsurance sells its risk to high net worth individuals. Okay, they're called names. So they are given a lot of uh, money for shouldering that risk. So, so far the insurance industry works well. Now, what can technology do to disrupt it? They're good at underwriting. Let them do underwriting. 
let the consumers and the businesses own the insurance companies so that they then become, as you pointed out, uh, accountable. Okay, you don't need capital to have an insurance company because the capital is the set of premiums. So if let's say I, uh, which is what my online idea is, let's say I crowdsource insurance and said that anybody who owns uh, the stock of the company is also a policyholder. Okay. So you have skin in the game because if the company makes money, you get dividends. If it uh, loses money, you, you lose your coverage ultimately. So that brings in that accountability issue. And then after you've pulled millions of dollars of capital, you go to the insurance company and say, hey, underwrite this risk for me and we'll uh, negotiate a price for it. So that's one piece of it. The other piece of it that's very, very exciting to me is new products that are going to come out. So an old professor of mine who won the Nobel Prize, uh, Bob Schiller at Yale, has been talking about it for years. So we have, for personal insurance, we have uh, health, life, disability, and long-term care. But there's, why, why not? Uh, to protect my income. If I'm working for Cisco uh, at $150,000 a year and I lose my job because of reasons nothing to do with me, there should be an insurance to get me through uh, a lifestyle that will then take me to another job. There is unemployment insurance, but that's nothing. Okay. If I bought a house in Silicon Valley and it's, it's $5 million today, why should I be the loser of that down the road if it goes down to three? I should be able to buy an insurance, right? I should be able to buy an insurance for every risk that I get from the time I start working to the time I die. You know, it's three, uh, in a, uh, you know, and to do that, everybody has to own the insurance company and that every piece of it has to be underwritten. And it's entirely doable. The, if you work out the math, it's entirely doable. It, it's all mutual. Yeah. It will be so useful because with the jobs that are going to be lost because of, you know, these uh, robotics and AI and all that. Absolutely. This kind of insurance, I hope that it is available. Is it available? Not yet. Not yet. Not yet. But there's a I lot, of, lot of startup thinking going on in this area. That Nobody would be really come useful. up with much. Uh, these are big things. I mean, they, these they are big things. These are yeah. big problems to solve. And I hope that, you know, collectively we are able to solve those problems because well, everybody is going to be impacted. Well, one of the greatest financial tools that have come about thanks to Obama is Jobs Act is crowdsourcing of equity. Now that has been uh, stalled a lot by the SEC, but there was an old SEC rule that you can go out to unaccredited investors and get up to $5 million. A Jobs Act gives you only up to $1 million. And now it's been extended to 50 million and so on. And I think this tool is going to be used uh, significantly to get around this institutional frameworks where Wall Street makes all the money uh, and uh, VCs make all the money. So uh, you're going to see a lot of crowdsourcing of insurance companies, of uh, other kinds of financial institutions. But banks, there's a good reason for banks to be around. But there's no good reason for insurance companies to be around as they are. Because they only yes yes no you are right about it and I hope that the crowdsourcing and this you know new innovative frameworks that are developing that we are able to solve all these big problems because this is not just about the few people now we are looking at the, you know millions and millions of people that are going to be impacted across nations and That's we these these are going to be very critical times so we do need to come up with innovative collective solutions that we can help the humanity because this is going to be a crisis of you know enormous proportions and if we are not thinking innovatively and not thinking about everyone that's going to be impacted and it's just few of them are going to become you know very super rich and you know successful that those imbalances are going to create a lot of risk oh, so, absolutely. I, yeah. I think that's the biggest problem it's the biggest problem yeah the amazing skewness in uh, wealth is is uh, is the real problem and finance's role should be instead of enriching wall street should now be how to flatten this curve of wealth and it's entirely doable through technology and that's what my hope is that uh, through crowdsourcing by let me give you a completely different model that is so successful 
you know about Costco? Yes. Okay. So I've seen Costco come up. Uh, it's been 35 years. And I used to know the owner who started it and so on. Costco is an amazingly successful company, but it makes no profits. Okay, it's got 80 or 90 billion valuation, growing like crazy, about 90 million subscribers, members. And it's it's really taking the pants off of Walmart and, and Target. How is it doing it? Okay, so if you look at every Costco store, uh, <clears throat> they don't make profits, but they're completely self-sustaining. In other words, all employee costs, store costs, and everything is paid for, but nothing is kept back as profits. You can't build a model like that. If you're not making profit, then Walmart and others can't exist. So Walmart started Sam's Club, fizzled out, didn't work. So how does Costco make money? So by extending loyal customer base who pay 30, 40, 50 bucks, and that's now $3 billion a year. And that's clean profit. So that is multiplied 25 times, and that's how they get their valuation. Amazon caught that on a few years ago and created Prime. Now, if you use that model for consumers in finance, if I create a, 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 conglomerate, a conglomerate that has people who buy insurance, okay, but they're not corporatized. So insurance companies give uh, good discounts to corporations. They, do, they screw the individual. So the individuals form a corporation. They have the same powers. And uh, another organization that does similar things, the AARP. Have you heard of the AARP? There's the American Association of Retired People. Yeah. And they make uh, billions of dollars on just having their cohorts be given insurance uh, at a particular rate from the insurance company. They design insurance contracts that are good for 50 plus uh, uh, older people. And they just get a kickback from the insurance companies. And uh, so there is strength in, strength in uh, uh, you know, people getting together in meaningful ways. And the comp if, if the internet doesn't do that, then it's done nothing. So, uh, so that's where things might go in my mind, hopefully, where consumer power in finance will help flatten the inequality uh, of income. Uh, let's hope so. And if you have the power to influence making this, uh, if we just talk about the financial sector, fair and uh, level playing field for everyone across nations, what, where would you like to see the development happening? What kind of development you would like to see happening? I think it's easiest to do it in America because people are open to, uh, and there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of knowledge now about the inequality problem uh, and all of the political things that are happening. So uh, the time is right for disruption. But here's the problem also in America. Uh, the internet has created the largest monopolies in the world. Yes. So we used to talk about the robber barons of the past. These guys are the new robber barons, the Googles of the world and so on. They have so much power, so much money. So there has to be a countervailing force on the other side because they are making money out of consumers. So consumers must be able to demand something from them. Now, why don't they care? Because all of the services provided are free. And, and Amazon gives you best prices, best consumer service, customer service, and all of that stuff. But they all get their money from advertising or from, uh, in Amazon's case, with squeezing the supply chain. Okay, but at the same time, consumers should be able to get financial products and other products by making their own Googles and their own Facebooks happen. And um, so, uh, and the, you know, today we have all of the uh, capabilities for doing that. What's more, uh, using deep learning and blockchains and all that, you should be able to provide much better consumer data to leverage yourself. Yes. Right? If I, uh, if 10 million Californians own an insurance company, they would be happy to provide the genetic, uh, co um, uh, you know, uh, information they'll be happy to provide there because uh, they gain from it and so the differential pricing can be done by the way i don't know if you know 
but life insurance companies in America can get your genetic code anytime they want. Their lobbying was able to get that little thing through. No other business in the world has that capability without your permission. Why do they want to see the genetic code? Because I, I see this hype about no, wanting to know. Yeah, but see, this hype is there that by knowing genetic code, you'll be able to predict everything that's going to happen in future as far as diseases and life goes. But genetic code is just one factor. It is the environment that is going to you know de decide and determine what genes, uh, you know, are going to play a role and how the genes are going to function and how uh, kind of the mutation yeah, process. So, so it, as we said, that this is a snapshot. The code yeah, is. There is no guarantee that if you, if the genetic uh, analysis tells you that you are going to have diabetes or you are going to have, you know, this disease uh, growing up, some diseases, yeah, which are really genetic, they would be able to <laughs> make sense. But most of the diseases are caused by because of the environment that plays a role in it. So I don't know how the gene expression, they will be able to see that based on uh, that. Well, but, but they'll have a better handle on healthy, healthy people. They yes. would love to sell life insurance contracts to healthy people because yes. they'll long for long periods of time. Okay. Yes. And uh, uh, so to some extent, it gives them a, a heads up. Yes, uh, that, that, that does give them a lot of power. And I'm not sure if they should be allowed to see that uh, genetic data it because a lot of discrimination will happen and uh, you know if you look at it now we also have technology that by looking by just having a brain scan you will know what kind of uh, you know academic performance a child would have or what where he the child would be uh, succeeding what kind of career he would be succeeding so now if we if the employers start or the schools you know start uh, getting that data and they say that okay we don't want this child to learn mathematics because uh, neurologically it doesn't look like he will be good at math so let's mm -hmm. not teach him math. Now that is not going to be fair because the neurological discrimination will evolve, and that, and same thing, it will happen at work also. Employers will say we don't want to hire you because you won't be good at that. But right. is there is our knowledge complete about all these things? Just because the brain scan says that you know you won't be good at it, does that mean that it's not going to be good at it? Because I think neural pathways and all that is one thing, but how the glial cells around it plays a role. Nobody's, uh, you know, the, not much is still known and there is a huge amount of, you know, unknowns that are out there. So if we start using all these, you know, data as a decision, you know, the point, then I think, you know, it's going to be unfair to millions and millions of people because that is just not a way, fair way of assessing, evaluating all the risks. So I'm not sure. How yeah, effective so, that's going to be? Data is always incomplete. It always gives you the more the data, the more the false positives and the false negatives. Yes. yes. So, uh, so if you, uh, uh, you know, people who die in road accidents or something, the cadavers uh, um, uh, have uh, usually far more number of cancers embedded in them yes. than were than were figured out before. Now, those cancers might never be activated. Yes. Now, if you had that information, what would you do? You would do chemotherapy for this and this and that and the other. You might kill yourself in the process. Yeah. So we understand very little about the body. Exactly. We understand very little. About so the point is that all that information can be sometimes very dangerous. So um, uh, I think big data, that's negative of big data. A lot of false yeah. positives, a lot of false negatives, a lot of alleyways. You know, uh, when I learned econometrics, um, I was so fortunate. Uh, that that very year, my supervisor got the Nobel Prize, Lord's uh, Klein, and he used to always say, uh, you know, you can, and uh, you can correlate anything with anything. You know, somebody sneezing in Brazil uh, could uh, get the population of Taiwan up. Okay, but but they they don't make any sense unless you come with a mindset and proven logical thinking that this is a hypothesis, and I'm testing that hypothesis. You'll never get causality, you'll only get correlation. The problem with the whole AI, ML, BL world is that it's all based on correlation. And correlations can be extremely misleading sometimes when you don't know what the cause is or what, uh, what is the cause and what is the effect. 
but pattern recognition works in some things like recognizing a face or recognizing people's voice or finding a criminal or things like that. But uh, in more complex situations, it's got a long way to go, long way to go. Long way to go, absolutely, absolutely. And um, there is no question that society is shaped by advances in sciences and technologies. It creates by, uh, and by humans' use of them. Like many other individuals, entities, and initiatives, your organization is also trying to further advances in science and technology by investing in the needs for tomorrow. And we mm -hmm. hope that your investment creates an impact across nations that bring positive advances. So thank you so much, Professor Ghosh, for participating in Risk Roundup today. And we appreciate your thoughtful insight on deep machine learning for financial industry. And our global viewers and listeners would benefit tremendously from the understanding you provided on the application of intelligent machines across the financial industry or the sector and the opportunities and risk associated with the advances in technology and non-human intelligence. So even if a single individual or entity is able to come up with ideas to advance deep learning, machine learning, or broadly artificial intelligence and innovate to develop intelligent systems, Mm -hmm. All the complex challenges facing nations and manage its associated security risk based on the understanding they received from this discussion we had today. This risk roundup dialogue has been of service and we thank you for that. Well, thank you for having me. Wonderful, uh, Professor uh, Ghosh. And deep learning seems to be bringing the beginning to an end for traditional way of doing things. As we know across nations is government industries, organizations and academia in cyberspace, geospace and space. And it is important that we understand the risk associated with this fundamental transformation and evaluate its impact. Risk of cybersecurity risk research center and strategic security risk research center are created for these very reasons to identify, evaluate and manage the risk facing NGIOA in CGS. That means nations, is government, industries, organizations, and academia in cyberspace, geospace, and space. We at Risk Group believe that risk management, security, and peace, they walk together hand in hand. Though security is related to management of threats and peace to the management of conflict, risk management is related to management of security vulnerabilities as well as management of conflict. And it is not possible to conceive any one of the three without the existence of the other two. All three concepts feed into each other. We believe that the security we build for ourselves is precarious and uncertain until it is secure for everyone across nations. Tradition becomes our security. So if we build a culture of managing risk effectively, it will lead us to security and security will lead us to peace. Let's manage the existing and emerging risk together. For more information on the risk roundups, to watch the risk round videos or hear the risk round podcast, please go to riskgroupllc.com. And do not forget to subscribe and share. Until next time, I'm Jayashree Pandya, host of Risk Roundup, signing off. See you next time. Thank you.